Welcome to PR360, where every week the brightest minds in public relations, communications, and media discuss the topics and trends you need to know about. PR360 was produced in partnership with Global Results Communications. Now here's your host, Todd Perry. everybody and welcome back to PR360. My guest today is Adam Albright Hanna, who's the founder of AHA Audience Builders. He's a digital strategy and creative consulting specialist and distributes engaging content across various platforms. Uh, his clients include MIT Media Lab, Tenacious D, The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, Playboy, The 2008 Obama Campaign, Upworthy, The Onion, Good Worldwide, and some e-cards. Uh, Adam, is there anything that I missed? Um, uh, you got the good ones. You got the good ones? Okay. Uh, also, uh, I, I got to issue uh, just a little safe harbor here. Adam and I have worked together in the past, off and on, uh, mostly for Upworthy and Good Worldwide, writing and distributing trending content. And so it was there that I really uh, learned to appreciate Adam's work and his ability to kind of cut through the nonsense in a meeting and get to what we really need to be doing in terms of how do you create something and have it find the widest audience possible. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Todd. (laughs) Yeah, it's very nice. But yeah, no, it's good to be uh, working with you again right here. Yeah. So, okay, the interesting thing is I think that you – uh, we've talked about this a lot of times, and I think it's interesting for our audience to hear that you kind of came into the world of publishing on social media right at kind of the advent of Facebook uh, through The Onion, and were one of the early people to kind of create a strategy around making things go viral. Can you explain what that was like at The Onion and then how you came to the different strategies to you know get, get the articles out there? Um, well, yeah, the Onion, um, we had a process where we'd have to write 20 headlines and submit them. And that's how, like, the, the paper was created. And the, the 20 headlines were, um, like, uh, uh, you know, it was a good process for, like, divergent thinking and uh, creating lots of um, new type of ideas, which is a concept that Peter Keckley, the he was the managing editor of the Onion, he started, uh, co-founded Upworthy. And so at Upworthy, they brought that same uh, kind of process in there where we'd come up with 20 different headlines for like one piece of content. And um, so that was kind of like the basis of how they wanted to launch it. Uh, that Upworthy happened to like start right when Facebook did an algorithm change where they started promoting uh, news stories. So, oh, it was, was that, real quick, was that the moment? And also, just to back up a little bit for people who aren't familiar, the Onion was a it was and is a comedy website. Um, is was that the moment that Upworthy changed its algorithm? Was like the moment you could put a link into your status update? Where like there was a certain point where in the beginning, where like you just wrote like, "Hey, I'm having a good time." I just had some apples, you know, and then it became like, "Oh, you could put a photo up with it," and that was a huge evolution. And then was the algorithm change when you could put a link in and, and link to a story and it would populate or? Uh, you know, I don't know the exact timeline, but I'm sure like the link happened first. I think the link was up. You could do the links for a couple of years, but around 2012, Facebook really wanted to get into the news business. They wanted to be like the 
front page of the internet. Like, and so then they started um, rewarding posts that uh, not only news stories, but that like shared a lot. And so like an interesting thing up where they took advantage of that, not only be being clever, but like just by like benefiting from uh, like this algorithm change. So they were the only publisher who were writing headlines like that. So the headlines that we'd write in those early days sound like we're very first person. Like, I can't believe I saw this. This is amazing. And Facebook would then show it to a bunch of people and people would see that kind of first person headline and think that was like your status update. So people were getting confused oh. with the different things. But so that really worked and up where these advantage. And then things that get shared a lot, you know, that's how it could viral. And then, okay, so you say that Upworthy or the, that Facebook is rewarding things that got shared a lot. So it was like, were they sharing them beyond, you know, like I shared it to my 900 people, uh, somebody else sh- shared it to their 400. Were they pushing it past even to people that weren't in contact with those people? You know what I'm saying? Were they pushing it out of the normal ecosystem where it existed? Is that how they were benefiting those? Or it's just that they weren't tamping them down? No, no, that's exactly how they were benefiting them. And so, like, at Upworthy, um, we would, like, we wouldn't write for our audience. We would write for our uh, our audience's friends. And so, like, the whole thing was about terrible. And they had, like, really cool tools where we could see, like, um, like a story, like, to your point, it would, it would tell you, like, what generation people are reading in. So, like, I mean, you, you could see, like, G1, how many people were reading that story, but G2, G3, and that's, like, that would show you how far like in the ecosystem, as you call it, like it would get. And so if we would test out, if I would test out an article and I would see that would get like, you know, G12, I knew that that was about to be like a huge viral hit. Wow. What was the farthest generation it got out? Uh, G7, G17 pops into my mind. So I'm going to guess 17 <laughs> generations. <laughs> wow. Um, and so when you're writing these headlines, and weren't you guys, you were like, a B testing them, so you would do multiple headlines for a different story, and then A B test it and see which ones went furthest. Or yeah, exactly. They had these really cool tools um, where it would show to like a small percentage of the audience that was like happened to be on the site, and it was very predictive. So yeah, I would run like dozens of tests and like trying out like all different crazy headlines and images and packages and stuff, and then there were little scores so you could tell. Um, you know, like what was going to be like a huge hit or not. So uh, I would go crazy with that. <laughs> and then what was the takeaway uh, on in those early days? Like what was the perfect, you know, I don't know, what, what, what were the kind of best practice you used for creating headlines? Was there a rule to it or did you just kind of see what sticks to the wall? Well, the challenge was creating like a curiosity inducing type of packaging for stories that were kind of like normally like inaccessible, you know, or like, cause it was, it was trying to be, we were trying to be like the Buzzfeed, but for like things that matter. So, um, you know, like an ideal way of doing it would be, yeah, I guess you would have to, you'd start with a piece of content. Like you'd find like, okay, this is a great content piece of content that I want to promote. And then you would, you know, do like the emotional base, like type of, like baby headline to get people to click it. And then once they click it, the idea that would be so good that they couldn't help but sharing it. And then also like on the site, like up where they had these giant obnoxious, like share on Facebook buttons and you know, little boxes that would pop up and stuff. So how quickly was it till you realized that other people were biting Upworthy's style? Because I remember pretty quickly after Upworthy hit the scene, 
um, and I started seeing their content everywhere. Uh, how how quickly was it until you started seeing other people use the same type of headlines? Mm, that's a good question because I remember that I think I I think it was probably less than a year. Upworthy was really proud of at the time someone I think fast or someone like referred to Upworthy as the fastest growing media company of all time. And I don't, I don't know what they are doing that, like how they rated that, but they were really proud of that. But then I remember like, yeah, less than a year after that, we got the email and it's like, it's like Distractify is growing faster than we did. And so like Distractify was one of the first sites that I ever saw that was like doing like the exact same type of like emotional based headlines. And that's when I realized like, I know people at Upper they were scared, but to me, I thought it was kind of exciting when I realized like the potential of like, like taking this formula and like scaling it in other ways. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and now the funny thing is that Upworthy actually is still, and I will say this as somebody who does work for Upworthy, Upworthy is still a leading trending content site online, whereas others have fallen by the wave, wayside, which is pretty interesting. Like just recently people were saying, you know, BuzzFeed had a, you know, they gutted their entire newsroom thing and Huffington Post just isn't what it used to be and kind of all the different sites that came around that time. And Upworthy still seems to be have, you know, morphed and changed and, you know, altered its brand a bit and uh, survived and, you know, by making what I believe is great content. But <laughs> well, yeah, very good. Now, in, in the early days of when you're marketing, you know, sending out these Upworthy posts, uh, how quick was it before Facebook began to tamp down stuff? Like once you get up to like 8 million, 9 million followers, at what point do you go, oh my gosh, I realize that only Facebook is only showing this to 5% of the people who follow us. At what point did that big change come? Yeah, well, the big change for Facebook, it felt like they started intentionally... Um, changing their algorithm to punish Upworthy specifically. And I don't know if they actually did or they just were really good at figuring out how to do it. But um, yeah, they got to a point where it was like ridiculous where like people I was friends with would complain to me because like people couldn't go through their Facebook feed without seeing a ton of like Upworthy headlines. And it was annoying the crap out of everybody. Um, and so they're so like, yeah, I think that was probably like late 2013. Like Upworthy reached... It's like traffic peaks. Yeah, they got up. They were like the, the top thirty site or something like that. There was like some point where they were even like on BuzzFeed's like heels at the time. But um, but then yeah, the algorithm they started they started doing it. So yeah, it's more of that. It wouldn't travel beyond the the audience as much. You, you wouldn't get so many G seventeens out there. <laughs> exactly. Um. So let's see here. Uh, these days, you know, you work in audience development and you work with different clients trying to promote their content and get the most social media followers. Um, what's something that people don't understand when they come to you for help? Like what's something that, what's an expectation that you have to reverse? Or You, you get where I'm going? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's certain publishers, a lot of publishers, in fact, really want their audience to want the content that they want to put out. And it's like, so they would like, well, like do you know, sponsored posts and like put money on it. But it's like, instead of actually listening to what their audience responds to, what they want, they try to like kind of force like a certain way of about it. So one thing I try to do is like have people like, instead of trying to so strictly top down, 
describe what kind of the content should be is more of like looking for the type of content that the audience is looking for. And you could do it within like, you know, your own framework and your own viewpoint. But um, as opposed to just like dictating them. Oftentimes, like the publisher will have like their own types of stories they want to do well. And uh, they think they could just like throw money at it and get an audience to um, be engaged. And, but like the, the misunderstanding that like they can't like, you know, you can't really buy the audience you want. You can't really pay people to like what you want them to. So it's like you really need to listen to your audience and see like what they respond to and kind of let them more dictate the kind of content or the way you, you do it versus like just kind of top down uh, kind of mandate of like this is what our audience will like because then they end up spending like a lot of money trying to get people to like it and it doesn't often work. So I guess the basic idea is that no matter how much you want to try to put money behind something, if the general public isn't interested in your story or interested in your video, you're going to have a really hard time making anybody care about it. Yeah, you're going to have a hard time understanding why they don't care about it. So it would be a lot more useful like trying to find things that work versus trying to pay for things that work. So like usually I, I try to really kind of... Um, uh, like hammer home the importance of like it just needs to be really good like first and foremost like the article needs to be good or the video needs to be really good and then everything around that and trying to get that people to respond to it has to be based on that because like when it's not and when it's just kind of like a, a puff piece by some sort of like you know sponsor client then you're not going to get any sort of like real really resonant type of content you're certainly not going to make it go viral like for things to like do well like beyond normal well which most things don't like that it has to be like surprising and like novel in certain ways and when you're in a situation when you have to like package up stories by like committee and get everyone to agree on the story and how it's presented and stuff like that then you when you start kind of like softening up the edges and you take away its uniqueness and makes it kind of like bland and it's the type of story that people don't click on don't share yeah yeah so what do you think are the ingredients that make a story go viral. You've seen a, a whole bunch. Uh, and if there's any great examples you have of stories that really went mega viral that you didn't expect or, you know. I mean, you have like the normal stuff where it's like, you know, it's got to like resonate emotionally. It's got to tell uh, something about the person who's sharing it. Um, but the, like the, the things where like I was just referencing like the novelty, that's like when the things are a little bit weird um, and like, catches your eye maybe like an interesting like image to go with that like almost like the heart of it just like to have anything that to do outperform like normal stories that there's like an old like journalism rule that for some reason a lot of like publishers don't really see more like the whole uh, was it uh, man bites dog type of aspect where it's got to be like an interesting surprising story at its heart and then you know you throw an emotional <laughs> aspect to it and how people identify with that <laughs> you know, I've found that after, you know, kind of writing trending content for a really long time, that one thing that tends to do well, like one kind of common theme, is things that are affirmational. The, I don't, yeah, that's what do you know some of your uh, biggest hits, Todd? Like Todd being what I think you are easily the biggest, uh, the biggest performing writer at Upworthy and definitely good wide. Um, well, I mean, real quick with the affirmational thing, I've, I've found that it's like stories that af affirm a, a person's belief about themselves, whether right or wrong. 
right? It's something that people go, oh, okay, that makes me feel better in my own skin. Whether you're ta- like things like it's why body positivity stories tend to do very well, or political stories where people go, oh, I knew those people were that way, or um, something that affirms that it's okay for people to be who they are. Uh, I think that always will bring a huge audience. And then also it brings the audience of the person who relates to that and says, oh, good, now I feel better about myself. But then there's also the people who may not agree who are going to click on it as well. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very well put. Yeah, like people definitely do it like the, yeah, like, yeah, to affirm their beliefs and like, yeah, I knew I was right. And if it's something people are like, uh, you know, emotional about, then obviously you're going to have like a lot of other people who respond like easily, uh, easily like a, uh, either emotionally with them or against them. Yeah, everyone knows that like, you know, rage baiting can like incite, you know, a bunch of conversations which can help things go viral. But but anything that gets people talking performs better just like because any sort of interaction on a post, you know, you know, makes it populate in the algorithm more often. I think the ones I wrote so far that have gone the biggest was recently I found a story and it was about this couple that was in their fifties and I think that was a headline. Couple in their fifties lives on cruise ships because it's cheaper than their mortgage. <laughs> and that story's millions and millions of people read that story. And I interviewed one of the guys that the guy that lived on the ship. And that story, and I was like, well, why is that story such a big hit? I was like, A, it's aspirational because people want to know how can I live on a cruise ship for the rest of my life? And then on the other hand, at a time when housing is so expensive. It was affirmational to people who were like, oh my lord, it's so expensive to own a house that it's cheaper for me to live on a luxurious cruise ship than to buy a place in my neighborhood. Right? Yeah. It's a good curiosity-inducing headline because I want to know how much like it costs. But you don't put that in the headline, but that's good. forces people to click. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> right, and then also it's like, uh, gee, people are going to listen to this and think we're just <laughs> I mean, it's the modern media landscape. But it was that... Um, that story, yeah, that story just blew up. And another one, which wasn't really, didn't really hit any of these points that we've been making, but there was one, and this was just, I saw a video of Alanis Morissette. <laughs> My God. And yeah, Alanis Morissette, and she rewrote the lyrics to Ironic, making them about today's world. And I think, I think I don't know, was she on James Corden's show or something? And then she... She wrote a song, and it was maybe about like being ghosted on a dating app, or I forget the exact lyrics to it, but it was it was definitely just about like modern problems, uh, you know, twenty five years after she wrote that big hit, and man, every time we would put that in the Upworthy feed, that thing would just blow up, and that that might be the biggest. Yeah, that was. Yeah. But again, that didn't involve me being a great writer, by the way. <laughs> cruise ship story at least i felt good about it because i did some some genuine uh reporting there but that one was just like sharing a video i thought was cool but the other the other one that you wrote that was the big hit you might want to edit it out but like it was taiwanese model speaks out about the meme that ruined her life oh yeah 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 that yeah, thing yeah. oh my that god was... that, that that yeah so many other places like uh took that same story and yeah i've seen that story a billion times that was huge yeah, that one was about a model who sadly wound up becoming a meme because of some plastic sur- surgery she had done. And that story, 
And I think I think the reason the story went viral is because the meme went viral. Right? Everybody knew the meme, everybody had seen the meme, and now they got the story. But I think every time I see a meme and it's like this is who the real person is, I immediately will read that story because I want to know how they felt about being a meme, which is <laughs> such a modern, weird thing to happen. Yeah, I guess that would fall into yeah, the umbrella of being surprising. You know? So it's like an interesting, yeah. I don't know how it's affirmation, but maybe people are glad they're not memes too. <laughs> <laughs> we will, you know, in the modern era, you know, Andy Warhol said that people will be famous for 15 minutes. I think we'll all be a meme. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so what, what are some, because you obviously, you wrote for uh, a bunch of different sites you, you, the Onion, you did stuff for Upworthy, Good Worldwide. Um, what are some stories that you wrote that just completely took off, and why did they? Um, one of my favorites, the first one to get like over a million views was on the uh, overview effect. So it's like the, the phenomenon that happens when astronauts go in outer space and they see the Earth from that perspective, and it's like, you know, they thought... They would be going out there and looking at the stars and stuff, but that it turns out like they were most, you know, mostly impacted by seeing like the, you know, the fragile world or Earth, you know, themselves. Like, um, so yeah, overview effect is the name for that. And so that was like a video on YouTube that was just like called the overview effect. And they were trying to like gin up enough interest so they could like make a documentary. So I, I took that video and I like, I gave it a really stupid title and like, um, and then put on Upworthy and it was like a huge hit. And then like, it was like such a big hit for them that they were actually able to like raise enough money and like do that documentary. That's cool. You know, the funny thing was that I knew you and I knew that you wrote and did things. I know that you, I knew that you had done things for the onion. And then I remember actually seeing that article and then seeing your face. Cause it had your name by your byline. And I was like, Oh, what, what is Adam doing? And I remember that was the first thing that I realized that you were working in that, world when i saw your your face on there um <laughs> yeah that's right people thought i like made that documentary it's like it was so early no one understood that like yeah that was like my just like my headline <laughs> for the video so people were like oh my god adam like they thought i went to like space and like <laughs> did the video but no <laughs> <laughs> I, I think i might have thought that too i was like wow where's he getting this Make a documentary money from what's what's Adam up to these days? So okay, one uh, we'll we'll end on this. There's something I guess controversial happening right now, and I think in the world of mass communications, in the world of writing, in the world of trying to come up with headlines, in the world of trying to build audiences, uh, what do you think about the new AI writing tool ChatGPT, and how do you think that's going to change the world of trending content? Oh boy, like. I mean, I, I love chat GPT. I've been using it like crazy. It's so fun. There's like so many things you could do with it. Um, in terms of like viral content, like if I were still like as an editor, if I were like turning out stories, I mean, I would use it just to like write a whole bunch more stories. Um, I definitely wouldn't recommend anyone going into the career of writing <laughs> if they were a young person, but um, not like, but like, um, yeah, I know it's an amazing tool. Um, I, like I never thought, AI in my lifetime, I don't think, would be able to produce comedy, but like I'll ask it stuff and like I'll tell it to be like a certain type of character, like a mean drunk sorority girl or something like that, and explain like complex like concepts and like it'll do it and like it'll be like like laugh out loud, hilarious, like how funny all the stuff is. You're like, okay, pay attention, dum dum. Oh, that's really good. But as far as like 
viral content. Like, no, yeah, I mean, I could just see like an editor being able to. I mean, I mean, it's it's I mean that that stuff is like scary because like you could just like copy and paste an article from BuzzFeed and say write a version of this for Upworthy, and then two seconds later you'd have your own version. Yeah, it is a little disturbing. It was just a couple of days ago that a buddy of mine was like, oh, I want to give you a tutorial on this. So I said, okay. And I guess I've written so many articles uh, for some e-cards, for Upworthy, for Good Worldwide, that ChatGPT knows my writing style. Oh, cool. No, not <laughs> really. Because you can put in ChatGPT... Um, write this article in the style of Todd Perry from Upworthy. And you can you can go, how does Todd Perry from Upworthy write? And it'll explain. Todd Perry is a writer who writes empathetic things and catchy headlines. And it goes through this whole thing. And there's another Upworthy writer who does a lot of writing. And I put her name in there. And I know because her style, she writes differently. And if you would like it, and it came out with two different articles. One that was written by me, which is a little more newsy. And a little more kind of red meaty. And then it came out like her was a little more empathetic. And here's how people are feeling about this and blah, blah, blah. And so immediately I was like, wait, I, wait, wait, I didn't know we were here yet. So that this, this thing knows how to write like me. Uh, and I found that to be like kind of wildly disturbing. And then I thought, I got to go to like, um, I got to keep doing podcasts like PR360 and then go to bartender school or something like that to uh, make a living. I got to be, you know, drive Lyft. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen when my boss finds out that they can just write stories like me through ChatGPT. Well, I mean, you could also write stories like you using ChatGPT. So now you can just write like 20 more stories a day. And all you got to do is like write a story about this in the style of me. And then you can just do like, you know, much more. Your job just get way easier. That doesn't matter when I'm unemployed. Well, this is, I'm telling you how to not be unemployed. They're going to try to... Because somebody else figured out how to do that. So I could just like start taking someone else's like, <laughs> like just because someone else figured out how to rip you off. Like you rip yourself off first and then scale it up. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, would be, it would be disturbing. Although I'm going to see if it can do me. That would be cool. So while you looked that up, one last thing, uh, I was using ChatGPT yesterday. Well, actually, I found an article. It was an article in Business Insider, and a woman went on ChatGPT and she put in like, "Can you please make an affordable, high class uh, Italian you know, pasta recipe that you know I can make in you know twenty seven minutes or something like that." And uh, put it in chat GPT and it spit out this really nice shrimp pasta recipe. And I made it last night. And, and my wife is very kind of anti the chat GPT. Once she saw what it did, she was like, no, this is sorcery. I don't want it in my life. And so then I made the whole meal last night. And she was like, oh, this is so good. And I go, you know where I got the recipe? She's like, what? I go, I was like, chat GPT. And she was like, no, you're eating. You can't GPT. feed me. <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't feed me this uh, robot food. So could they find you? Can the can the AI write like you? Yeah, this is awesome. It's like uh, <laughs> as an AI language model, I could attempt to write in the style of Adam Albert Hanna, the creative writer and content creator known for his humorous and engaging writing. Wow. Mm. Yeah, it gives me like a wow, like a example of my style. Eey. Well, I I like that somebody finds you funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so okay, 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening to PR 360. I know this week, because I was with my buddy Adam, who uh, we've also worked together, but also a wealth of information about the history of viral content. And I uh, would definitely love to have you on sometime in the future. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks for having me, Todd. If we're not replaced by AI. And uh, where can people find you? Ahaaaudiencebuilders.com. Mm, is, that, is there a dash in there? A dash H A audiencebuilders.com? No, just like, aha. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't really have much on there, but maybe by the time this goes up, I'll put something up there. All right. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks, Todd. PR 360 was produced by Todd Perry in partnership with Global Results Communications. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review wherever you get podcasts. Follow GRC on all socials at Global Results. Follow Todd on Twitter at Todd A. Perry. That's Todd with one D. Talk to you next week.